Welcome to the Cyber Series, a podcast brought to you by Ankura, the global expert services and advisory firm. In this series, we talk to industry experts about current trends and how best to navigate the cybersecurity, data privacy and technology issues impacting businesses across the world. Hello, everyone. I'm Kajen Subramani and welcome to the Ankura Cyber Series podcast. Today, we have Ted Tyson with us. Ted is a senior managing director in Ankura's cybersecurity team and heads up the Cyber Threat Investigations and Expert Witness Services. Ted, great to have you on board. Can you give us a, a bit of info about your background and what it is you do at Ankura? Sure. Yeah, thanks. It, it's great to be here. I'm really excited about this podcast. And as you mentioned, my name is Ted Tyson. I'm Senior Managing Director of the, the CTIX team here at Ankura, which CTIX stands for the Cyber Threat Investigations and Expert Services. We offer basically three different services complex cyber investigations and threat intelligence services and expert testimonial services for for cyber litigation. And with regards to to my background, I've been in cyber investigations for as long as I can remember, over 20 years, 23 years or so. But I started um, as an application developer and, and database administrator at an online brokerage many years ago before information security and incident response was cool. And I was responsible for analyzing any outages that uh, that my company had, and and that quickly evolved into an information security role. And then after the events of, of September 11th occurred, I decided to apply for the FBI, where I, I joined as a special agent and worked with the bureau on investigating a whole cadre of, of cyber matters, you know, from criminal computer intrusions to cyber counterintelligence, cyber counterterrorism, and basically any any crime that was committed associated with an IP address or a computer, I, I got involved with those types of investigations. And additionally, after I left the Bureau, I um, spent some time at the, the Obama White House as his branch chief of cyber integrity, where I still worked in an investigative capacity, but it was more along the lines of an e-discovery role, working with White House counsel and investigating insider threats, such as like data leaks from classified environments to unclassified environments. And I've been in, in the private sector ever since I left government service and still conducting cyber investigations and, and cyber risk assessments you know, for the duration of time that have been out of the government. That's a really fascinating path you've had to get to where we are today. You say you've been investigating cyber crimes since before 9-11. Have you seen much changes in the way cyber crimes were proliferated from you know, prior to 9-11 to thereafter and, and even to now? I'm sure there must be some differences in how things have progressed over time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, both when I was in, in the private sector, and this was pre-Y2K, you know, that I was in the private sector. In hindsight, looking back at the internet, the cyber threats that were that we encountered, both with you know early days of the FBI, but as well as you know before I joined the FBI, I look back at how by today's standard how unsophisticated the attacks were, and being they were you know tip of the spear back then, but by today's standards uh, very unsophisticated. And like, for example, I recall, you know, email back then and today, you know, is still one of the most common attack vectors. But I think back to attachments 
that we clicked on, you know, notepad type readme.txt messages, but, you know, readme.txt.exe, you know, clearly, you know, in the attachment. But, but the fact that, you know, A, that wasn't detected, you know, those types of threats. So the tools that are in place today are so much more sophisticated, but the threat actors really didn't need to be sophisticated because the tools that were in place that are in place today, you know, weren't present back then. You know, some examples of tools that we have today that, you know, just the advancements in antivirus, you know, anti-malware, that wasn't as prevalent 20 years ago as it was today. But more so than that, you know, managed detection and response, you know, threat intelligence services, endpoint threat detection, you know, all of these tools, user behavior analytics, you know, all of these tools are game changers on the information security side, which has, has caused the threat actors to act markedly differently. And one other crime that comes to mind when I when I first joined the FBI, I recall getting many calls, like many of our complaints that were that were made to us to investigate were associated with website defacements. And in hindsight, you know, it, it blows my mind that threat actors would go through the trouble to compromise a web server, make a political statement on a website, and then leave. You know, the way that threat actors act today, you know, it's much more quiet, you know, seeking persistency and trying to remain unseen versus back then, you know, it was kind of, you know, smash and grab, get in, change the web server and then leave. And, you know, in hindsight, the fact that the threat actors didn't pivot, you know, and try to establish mechanisms of persistency and exfiltrate data, you know, uh, you know, defacements still happen today, but there's much more damage if unauthorized access is obtained in general. To tie in with, uh, you know, with, with the experience you've had, I remember back to when simple attachments and emails used to bait people very easily, mm-hmm. you know, with a, with a competition winning or, or something of that sort. And, and one of the, the easiest ways to, to infect individuals or companies was to hand out free USB thumb drives at conferences with lots of documents on them that people will eagerly drive them into a machine, auto-run, and machines are infected by the bulk. And you know, to take it to the, the latter points you talked about, I, I once worked on a matter at a large prominent bank where a massive credit card fraud had taken place. And on investigating and, and trawling through you know, investigative research on the dark web to see when did these details get leaked? How are they used? Uh, but also trawling through the organization's back end to figure out when was the perpetrator allowed to get in? When did he get on the, in, on the data services? We found that it was a year prior that the pet actor got in and mm. they slowly elevated access and moved laterally across the entire organization until they found a target which was worthy. And then they sat and watched how that target operates in the environment. And it was a a credit card approval mechanism that they watched inbound transactions and they watched the outbound outbound approvals and developed their own tool to generate the approvals based on the inbound request. And in that way, they, they, they enabled a fraud to happen with the bank being completely blind to anything happening because they replicated the bank effectively. At the end of it, almost the entire bank needed a, an overhaul on the back end to try and fix systems that were infected 
throughout the organization. So, so really, really fascinating how you know persistence is the key nowadays. It's not about showing the world that you're a threat actor. It's about getting what you want and getting something of value for the threat actor from it. Yeah, absolutely. I concur. Yeah, persistence is is key and and highly sought after for all threat actors that I work with uh, or investigate. Um, whether they're you know just common cyber criminals or you know state sponsored entities, establishing persistence is key. And the example that you provided is perfect. And it piqued a a memory of mine where a, a ransomware threat actor recently, I remember you know was working at here at Ankara. And my team was in the middle of negotiating how much ransom should be paid with the threat actor. And the victim company, they didn't want, they wanted to pay as little as possible, of course, to get the decryption keys. And the, the, uh, the threat actor, like the offer that was provided was markedly lower than what the threat actor wanted. And when we disclosed, well, that's all that the, uh, the victim company can afford, the threat actor responded with a screenshot of an email of what their insurance policy covered, which was markedly higher than what the, the victim company said they could pay. And, and that screenshot was obtained exclusively by operating in the manner that you described. You know, they just stayed dormant, unseen for a really extended period of time so that they could read emails and they could know exactly how much money they could get based on the insurance policy of the victim company. You know, it's horrible to laugh at that, but that's how threat actors work today. Yeah, deep market research and knowing what the market-related price for a particular ransomware attack should fetch. I remember seeing, Ted, on one of your presentations where you quoted FBI former director Robert Mueller when he stated there are only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that will be. Is he, is he trying to say that eventually every single company is going to get hacked at some point or the other? And what, what are your perspectives on this? Yeah, I believe he said that you know, around 2012, and I, I love that quote. I generally will use that quote shamelessly in, in every presentation that I give because it, it's brilliant. But I frequently will say if Director Mueller would state that quote today, he would say, there's two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't realize they've been hacked. Because I'm, you know, on my, my cynical viewpoint is every company under the sun has been breached and most of them just don't even realize it. Granted, I, I know that's a little extreme. I'm sure every company hasn't been breached, but it's just so common and so prevalent. However, I would say, you know, after reviewing the evolution of incident response and the evolution of, of cyber threats over the past 20 years or so, I would say that today, Director Mueller would probably change his quote and say, there are only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that are preparing to identify how they will, how and when they will be hacked. Because the way that the threat actors have evolved and the way that incident response is currently evolving, it's, it's so important to proactively look outside of the boundaries of your firewall and look at the threats that are posed against your organization out on the dark web or the open source internet or in, in forums where uh, threat actors are, are chattering about how they're going to exploit certain vulnerabilities or target certain industries. 
And so I think a premium is being placed on proactive incident response. And so I think that that would more accurately convey what Director Moeller was trying to convey with that quote. I certainly agree with you on that. I've seen that companies put a lot of effort and emphasis on saying they have a cybersecurity framework in place. It's NIST compatible. They've got playbooks. They've got a, you know, they've got a song sheet from which they sing when an attack happens, but they haven't updated it in the last three years. You know, people have left the organization when something happens. Nobody knows who to call. The documents were saved on a hard drive, which is now encrypted. People need to be able to adapt and evolve. And what I'm hearing you say is that one of the layers that need to be brought into cyber defense is looking outside. Because most organizations are looking inside. How do we close our door? How do we prevent people from getting to us? But by looking outside, you can get a better understanding on who are the people who Mm -hmm. are trying to get in and what are the techniques and methods that they are using to try and get in. Or is there something of yours that's already got out that you just don't know about it and you see it out there in the world? I mean, is this what you're seeing with some of your clients, Ted? A hundred percent. And and man, that's a, it's a huge soapbox of mine. You know, a couple points that you've touched on. One being, you know, compliance versus security. And I, and I know compliance is essential, but I think compliance has lulled a lot of information security professionals into believing that their infrastructure is secure. I've responded to so many breaches where where the victim companies have said, you know, CIOs, CISOs have, have said, how could this happen? We're, we're HIPAA compliant, you know, we're, we're PCI compliant. And, and so I think it really conveys a false sense of security, whereas, you know, security needs to be customized based on the culture of your organization, your, you know, quantifying threats that are posed against your organization. And it's much more active, you know, versus compliance, one stamp and you're, you're done, you're, you're secure. But taking that a step further, many of the, the compliance frameworks don't even include looking outside of the boundaries of your firewall. It's, it's getting better, you know, but designing your, your information security program, NIST 853, you know, I think it's important to also look outside at what threats there are. So having a, a, a robust threat intelligence program is essential. And I do see a lot of companies moving in that direction. And, you know, I, I guess other elements to bring into that are the evolution of artificial intelligence and the ability for things like ChatGPT, for example, to help people with code. And we've come to see that even very beginner users can use tools, you know, AI-based tools, to generate scripts which could be used for rudimentary hacks and, and the such like. Back in the past, script kiddies were for sale at a very low price for, for very simple things. But, mm-hmm. but with AI, we can do far more complex things. How do you see this impacting the kind of gearing that organizations need to do to you know, be aware and evolve to this ever-changing landscape of artificial intelligence learning how to be better and being able to create more and more ways to attack an organization? Yeah, with the, the prevalence of AI, it is absolutely changing 
how the threat actors work, but also just how corporations work in general. So like your example of using of AI to generate malware, you know, so a script kitty living, you know, in his parents' dark basement, writing code, copying, pasting, you don't really need to do that anymore because you can use any AI engine like ChatGPT and ask it to develop the malware code on your behalf. And so it's changing rudimentary, easy to detect malware, for example, to very complex without having a need to be, uh, you know, brilliant. And in the same way, you know, I'm seeing corporations that, you know, once pursued Ivy League A-plus students, you know, in application development, they don't really need that anymore. You know, you could have a, a C average, you know, from a community college and use chat GPT to write the code, you know, for your clients. And so I think it's changing the entire landscape, much in the same way that many years ago when search engines, you know, uh, became prevalent. And, um, and I remember way back then people were saying, oh my gosh, it's not fair. You can, you can run a Google search or a Yahoo search uh, or an Ask Jeeves search, you know, back in the day to identify how to do something and citing sources of internet content was needed back then and it was it was frowned upon and i think in the same way people today will evolve along with ai engines but it's going to take some time in the same way it took some time to get used to the uh, the search engine hitting the market i'm sure a lot of listeners uh, the younger listeners out there may be wondering what what is ask jeeves <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's quite a blast from the yes. past but you know really c- continuing from that you know I think the AI technologies that we're talking around, as much as they can create threats, the response tools, managed threat detection, are beginning to use AI to be better at recognizing patterns of behavior, to analyze logs, to analyze feeds, to gain intelligence around what's happening on an organization's infrastructure. So, so the same technology being used to create a threat, but also being used to detect these threats and better gear an organization to respond to them. But continuing from that, what what do you think are the most prominent future threats in the landscape that people should really be paying attention to right now? Yeah, I, I think it'll be much the same. You know, I think email will continue to be the primary vector of compromise, especially with the prevalence of AI. I see like social engineering going to the next level, you know, with AI and, and we're seeing it today. For example, with SMS text messaging, text messaging, phishing, smishing, we're seeing that being very prevalent right now, you know, driven by AI, but also AI resulting in kind of a non, a seemingly non-technical social engineering tactic is just identifying on, out on the open source internet clips of individuals' voices and then using AI to simulate that voice in phone calls to to targets to appear to be like the victim that the threat actors are purporting to be to convince somebody on the periphery to wire money, you know, to state that they're in trouble or to defame them. And we're seeing that very frequently posing, uh, using AI to pose as potential victims. And, and I, I do think we'll see complex social engineering much more prevalently in, in the future because of AI. 
also and kind of uh, related to AI, but more on the periphery. You know, I see Internet of Things being more, more and more of an issue in that they'll be one of the primary components of botnets as opposed to, you know, the standard desktops and servers, you know, IOTs, there tends to be less of a, a sense of a need to secure those and to have visibility and accountability of IOTs on infrastructures. You know, the traditional endpoints like servers and workstations, those are focused upon. Oftentimes IOTs are undetected and unmanaged. And so I think they're a greater target as drones and a botnet. And so I think they'll be used much more frequently with DDoSs, for example, and, and just other malicious activity. Yeah, I mean, with, with IOTs, I, I know in, in the region that I'm in, a lot of vehicles that come in here have a significant amount of technological capability, but local regulations disables all of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got self-driving aids, which can only be used in the vehicle, no app con- connectivity and the such like. IoT will really, really change the game with that if significant compromises are made on self-driving vehicles in the future. So it's a driving driving weapon. And, and to your earlier point, with emails particularly, um, and looking at the, 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 the victim of an email, education still remains one of the biggest factors in changing the dynamic uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. The, the culture of cybersecurity is is the biggest thing that the world needs to change. Even when Tom Cruise is being impersonated by a deep fake purporting to, you know, why are you loads of money if you just send him his your bank account details, you need to know based on education that that's not real. It it couldn't be. And and it's only a matter of time where organizations start investing more and more on education in cybersecurity to change that tone. Ted, continuing from that, what are the three things that you want to ensure people have front and center when considering their approach to cybersecurity? Yeah, that's a great question, especially in light of everything that we've discussed, and especially in light of how cyber threats have evolved over the past 20 years and where where I think they're they're headed. But but three items, you know, first one, I would just say, you know, be flexible. And alluding back to you know compliance versus security, when looking at the security of your organization, be flexible that some elements of enhancing your security may be outside of that compliance framework. So flexibility is is essential. A planning, you know that that goes without saying. You need to plan as if you are being attacked. Plan as if you are are currently under attack because you really are, in my cynical view. Another quote that I love is uh, General Eisenhower. He stated, in preparing for battle, I have found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, Kajin, when you said, you know, you have an incident response plan, but it's been sitting, you know, on a, on a desk for the past three years. Testing out these plans, tabletop exercises, for example, or reviewing your IR plan with outside third parties to make sure that it's it's up to date. It's essential. The planning part is the essential part. Having a plan, I agree with General Eisenhower, is useless. And then lastly, look outside of your organization, outside of your your firewall. I think organizations today, corporations today, 
are so hyper-focused on indicators of compromise internally that they fail to look at the threats that are being posed against them out on the open source internet and the dark web. But not just there, you know, not just threat intelligence, also collaborate with other industry partners that you have, collaborate with competitors, uh, you know, to identify what threats they're experiencing so that you can all prepare together. Collaborate with law enforcement, you know, reach out to your local law enforcement entity just so that they know who you are, so that when you call them, when you experience a threat, there won't be awkwardness with introductions. They'll know you. And so those, those I guess, are the three high-level recommendations that I would have. That's really useful, Ted. I'm sure our listeners will, will keep that front and center, help them in their journey to cybersecurity, compliance, and resilience. Ted, it's really been fascinating hearing your perspectives on where we've come from and at where we're heading. And thank you very much for joining us today on the Ankura Cyber Series podcast. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of the Cyber Series, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Just search for Ankura. You can follow all our latest insights and find out how we're supporting clients to reduce risks and protect business value by visiting ankura.com.